This is The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. David is the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Casa Grande in Casa Grande, Arizona. More often than not, today in the life of many believers, there's still not a whole lot of peace. And they really don't understand the grace of God. And the reason for that, I believe, this morning is because they failed to understand that in the midst of everything else, they are to be slaves, bondservants to God. That means the obedience. That means changing my dialogue. That means changing the focus of my life. Not my will, but His done. As we continue Sinners, Slaves, Yet Saints, we see that Paul understood what it meant to give up everything and be fully submitted to the Lord's will in his life. We know that often the world will offer us grace and peace, but of course, at a price. Grace and peace that come from the Lord are free-flowing and are attainable through full submission. This means making changes in our lives. Pastor David describes the grace and peace Paul speaks of in his greeting, illustrating how slaves become saints. Let's join Pastor David in the book of Romans for the conclusion of our message entitled, Sinners, Slaves, Yet Saints. He's an ambassador for the gospel. Wouldn't all of those fall in the same place as a missionary? But yet we don't use the word apostle for them, I believe, because in many churches, in many traditions, they still use that word apostle as being one of some great power and some great authority that, again, comes and and wields authority rather than simply being a messenger and ambassador for the gospel. Are there apostles today? Yes, I believe that they are. They are the sent out ones. They are the ones that are ministering the gospel in every area. I look at Robert being sent out to... Aho, he's ministering out there. But I told him last night, I said, I'm not about to call you an apostle, brother. But in reality, you are covering that job, that position. I look at Mike Reardon ministering over in Sacatone. Again, serving and ministering the Word of God in another area. Sent out by this fellowship to serve in that area. Still doing that work and that ministry. Thirdly, Paul speaks about the fact that he was separated out. He says there in verse 1 that I was separated to the gospel of God. He was separated out for a purpose. And Paul understood that. He understood what being separated out was all about. As a matter of fact, when he writes to the Galatians, he speaks to them about the reality of his being separated out. In Galatians chapter 1, beginning actually in verse 14, he writes, that he was advanced in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries in his own nation being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of the fathers. But when it pleased God, verse 15 says, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace and then to reveal his son to me, that's when he began to preach and to minister the gospel. When was he separated out? Paul understood that it was while he was still being formed in his mother's womb. I believe along with this, he, he took uh, along the, the idea and the understanding of connecting with Jeremiah the prophet when Jeremiah declares that, man, you formed me and you fashioned me even in my mother's womb. And you had that plan and that determination that I was going to be a prophet even from my mother's womb. Jeremiah understood that. The important thing is for you and I also to understand that, that God knows who we are even as he's forming us at the very beginning of the conception that we have. 
The unfortunate thing is many people believe that, well, like um, the, the Mormons or the LDS doctrine is, is that, no, we're all little angels up in heaven just waiting to be born. You know what? That's nothing that the Word of God speaks about. That is totally a doctrine of man made up. It's not true. We become who we are at the point of conception as God begins forming us and fashioning us. And that's another reason why abortion is such a horrendous crime against not only humanity, but against the very will and direction of God. Because even at that point of conception, God is forming and fashioning and determining and planning, and he has a future. He's separating us out for his call and for his reasons. Verses 2 and 3, he says, which he promised before, this whole idea that's gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. He's speaking about the genealogical aspect of Jesus Christ. He was the seed of David. He came through the lineage of David. And we see this in the prophets of the Old Testament. Men like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Zechariah, and others who declared that, man, he is going to be from the bloodline of David. He's going to be one of the branches of Jesse. The throne of David will extend and go on forever. There will always be someone within the lineage of David who reigns and rules in Israel. The scepter of David will not pass away. All these prophetic messages of the reality of the genealogical aspect of Jesus Christ being of the seed of David. In the New Testament, we look at the books of Matthew and Luke, and we see the genealogies that are written there. Matthew, primarily, we understand to be the genealogy of Joseph, the one who, in essence, took on the the form or the responsibility of being the earthly father of Jesus, though he was not the physical father of Jesus. That genealogy was given so that the world around him could see that, yes, he is of that bloodline or of that kingly family. In Luke, we have the genealogy, and we understand that that's the genealogy primarily of Mary. And when you look through and trace the genealogy of Mary, you see that she also is through the bloodline of David. And it's interesting, even today, if you're to go over to Israel and try and claim citizenship in Israel because of your Jewish heritage, they trace your heritage through your mother's bloodline more so than your father's. It's interesting in Luke when we see that it's through Mary's bloodline that we see also he is of the seed or the lineage of David. So in the genealogical aspect, we see, yes, he is the son or the seed of David according to the flesh. But in verse 4, it says, but he's declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The spiritual aspect, he's the very son of God and the proof and the power of that was the resurrection. Every time that we come to meet on Sunday morning, it's the reality of declaring the resurrection of Christ. Every Easter or Resurrection Sunday that we come and we celebrate specifically the resurrection of Christ. You know what? It's a declaration that God approved of all that Jesus did, and he placed that stamp of approval, that stamp of the power that was working within him, that it's by the resurrection from the dead that God accepted not only the very life of Jesus, but his death and the payment for our sin. All of that through the power of the resurrection. We see him speaking here 
of Jesus in verse 5, he says, Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus comes grace and apostleship. Through no other way, through no other power, through no other direction, but it's through Jesus Christ. And only in him are we receivers of that grace. It's only in him that we're able to send others out in his name. It's nothing that we can provide for ourselves. It's nothing we can build up for ourselves. It's through the work of Christ. And because we experience his grace, because we all are in essence called out ones, there's a responsibility that we have, and that's toward the obedience of the faith. Why? Because we're slaves. How can I, as a slave of Christ, after receiving the grace of God in my life, suddenly then say, but thanks, I'll go ahead and run my life and live my life the way that I want to. You see, there's something that's not connecting there. There's some reality within your own heart and your own mind that fails to connect to the fact that you have to surrender in your life to the Lordship of Christ if true Spiritual birth is going to take place in your life. You see, I cannot say, yes, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and go and live any way that I want to. That just does not fit within God's direction, within God's order and God's plan in our life. That last part of verse 5 and verse 6, he says, among all the nations, you also are the called to Jesus Christ. What an encouragement that is, not only for them in Rome, Paul had not been there. This is, from what we understand, really the first letter that he had given to them. He had probably passed word along with some of these others that he greets at the end of Romans. But the encouragement that, you know what? You, along with everybody else, you are part of the call of Jesus Christ. And that comes to you and I also. Now, 2,000 years later, the reality that all the promises within this word, all the declarations that God has for his people, we are a part of that. And it's too easy many times for us to be disconnected and say, well, that was 2,000 years ago. That was in the Middle East. That was in Rome. That was in areas of Asia. How does that fit to me? Beloved, we are together part of those who are called with Jesus Christ from nations all over the world. We are brothers and sisters. And that's why at communion time we can take that communion. And I declare to you, man, we are in common union with believers all around the world. And that's the blessing that's ours. And then verse 7, he speaks of that endearment when he says, You are the beloved of God. The beloved of God. I don't know about you, but many times when I look at what the Word declares, and sometimes I, I, I look at my own life and I see, man, I've failed God in so many areas, in so many different ways through the years and this last week and Today, and you know, you, you look at the reality, there's many times that we can fail the Lord in what he's calling for us to do and living, uh, again, the life that he's called for us to live. And yet, the reality is, is we are still the beloved in Christ. Funny thing is, is in his sovereignty, in his knowledge of all of us, he knows the failings, and yet still he calls us his beloved Yet still, he calls us to himself. That very next portion of that speaks about the fact that we are called saints. Not only were we the beloved of God, but we're called 
saints. And again, that the verb to be in some of your versions isn't really there. We are called saints. I'm the beloved of Christ and I'm saints. And the word saints comes from the Greek word agios or hagios. And it means holy or separated. Sanctified comes the same word. It simply means called out and set apart. And we've talked about that before, that we're called out of common usage, just as the instruments of the temple were called out of common usage and set up for spiritual usages, for special purpose. And that's who we are in Christ. That's who you are in Christ. Even when the enemy of your soul comes and begins declaring to you that you're sinful, you're worthless, and again, there's nothing about you that's holy, well, we can say, well, you know what? I know that I'm a sinner. But you know what? But I've given myself as a slave to Christ. And he says that I am holy. He says that I am a saint. Saints aren't stained glass windows, folks. Saints aren't statues at the front of churches or the front of, of seminaries or colleges. Saints are men and women just like you and I. I remember in college we used to have, you know, the night before uh, Halloween, it was called All Saints Day, and uh, we decided, well, we'd, we'd have a party, and you can dress up as your favorite saint. Some would come up dressed, I'm, I'm John, or I'm, I'm Paul, but the ones who really got it, we just came dressed the way we were. We're, uh, we're, we're all saints, and the, the fact is, is we don't look back at someone who's been voted into sainthood. No, you've been declared into sainthood. By the blood of Christ in your life. You are the beloved of God. You are saints of the Lord Jesus. Sometimes we don't really feel like saints, do we? Sometimes that's like the furthest thing from what we feel like we are. And yet, beloved, on the declaration on the authority of the Word of God, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've given your heart and life to Him, you are the beloved of God. You are holy. You are sanctified. You are the saint of God. And when the enemy of your soul comes to declare otherwise to you, I don't suggest getting into a conversation with him. But simply the reality is, is you know what? I was lost as a sinner. Now I am a sinner saved by the grace of God, and I am a saint in Christ Jesus. As the enemy of your soul comes to defeat you, to discourage you, to beat you down because of the weaknesses of your flesh, because of failings in your own life, be encouraged by the fact that you are still the beloved of God. Does God wink at our sin and say, oh, it doesn't really matter? Your No, he doesn't. God really will bring discipline in our life when that discipline is there, when we fail to heed his warning. But the promise of God's word is, is that we are saints. We are holy. We are the called out ones. We are separated. All that Paul declares and describes the church as is ours. He says, holy and beloved, saints and servants, called out and set apart. And because of that, we're to serve our Lord in obedience and righteousness. That is yours today. Don't let the enemy of your soul steal that from you. Don't let him pull you down to his level. Understand, again, the position and the place that we are in Christ. That you are holy and beloved, saints and servants, called out and set apart. And then find yourself 
serving the Lord in obedience and righteousness. The end of verse 7, he gives that little greeting, the typical Paulian greeting, where he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. We look at these words and we think, well, that, that's pretty typical for Paul. And as a matter of fact, it's so typical, Paul uses it in every letter that he sends out. In not only in Romans, but in First and Second Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians. Philippians and Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, even in Philemon. He uses that same phrase, grace and peace. Now, he may add a little bit more, detract a little. Basically, in every one of those, he uses those words, grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that three of these, the three that I have underlined, First and Second Timothy and Titus, those are three that he wrote to pastors. Timothy as a pastor and Titus as a pastor. It's interesting, he adds another word in there, not only grace and peace, but he says grace, mercy, and peace. And I'm wondering, why do the pastors, you know? Then I understand exactly why. Uh, we need a lot of mercy in our lives as pastors. The greeting that he gives to them, and first of all, speaking of that word grace, it has more of a, really a Greek feel to it. The reason is, is because the very definition of it, that that's freely given, the unmerited favor and love of God, the influence or the Spirit of God operating in humans to regenerate or strengthen them. You see, for the Greek and the Roman culture, they knew very little about grace. Nothing was freely given. The gods did nothing for you unless you did something for them. Man did nothing for you unless you did something for them. For the Greeks, for the Roman mindset, grace wasn't even a part of their vocabulary. So when he's writing to this church that's in the middle of Rome, in the middle of that Grecian culture, and he says, the grace of God be upon you. Man, that's something that's encouraging. And as he's going to speak, not only here in Romans, but in many of the writings of Paul, man, you don't earn this grace. It's something that God has given. It is that unmerited favor. It's the very strength and the power and the influence of God to regenerate you and to work and to build you up and to strengthen you in your life. When he says peace to them, peace again was very common among the Jews. We know it in, in Hebrew as shalom, but in the Greek is irene. Irene is, again, if you know somebody with the name of Irene in, in Greek, her name means peace. The whole idea of peace, either literally or figuratively, peace like, okay, I'm not at war with anyone right now. There's no battles that are going on. But also, by implication, the idea of prosperity. And again, don't get hung up on this idea of prosperity, because by and large, through all of Scripture, when it speaks of the prosperity, it speaks more so of spiritual prosperity than any other kind of prosperity. And when the peace of God is in your life, folks, you're going to be rich spiritually. It means a oneness, at peace with, a quietness, a restfulness, set at one again. And when that is in our lives, when the peace of God is reigning and ruling in our lives, folks, the world around us can be collapsing, but we can have peace right in the midst of that and know that, you know what, my circumstances, they're going to be what they are, and I will work whatever I can in, in those circumstances. But the fact is, is that God is still in control, and because of that, I can know His peace. Peace isn't just the absence of war and conflict. 
Peace goes much deeper than that. You may not be at war or at conflict with anyone, but you may not have peace either. But the peace that God gives goes to the very depth of who we are. He speaks at the very source of that peace and that grace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, give I to you. He knows that the peace that the world gives is only temporary and very shallow. But the peace that he gives is everlasting. It's eternal. It's filling. It's in the midst of storm that I can have peace. Folks, the world might offer you grace, but it's at a cost to you. The world might offer you peace, but it's not going to be lasting to you. The only real peace and the only understanding of grace that we're going to have is when we come to full understanding of surrender to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. More often than not, today in the life of many believers, there's still not a whole lot of peace, and they really don't understand the grace of God. And the reason for that, I believe, this morning is because they failed to understand that in the midst of everything else, they are to be slaves, bondservants to God. That means the obedience. That means changing my dialogue. That means changing the focus of my life. Not my will, but His done. And when that happens, we begin to understand the reality of the peace of God in our lives. It was in the mid 1800s, when a young lady by the name of Frances Havergale lived. Frances was the daughter of a pastor, very involved in church, and she was a very prolific writer, a writer of poems and songs. She was in a, a home at one time visiting some friends for an extended period of time, and in that particular home, there was about 20 to 30 others that were staying there for this extended period of time, and some of them were non-believers, and some of them were believers. And even among the believers, though, there were some who were really sold out for Christ and others who were just very nominal in their Christian belief. And she saw, as she intermixed with that group of people for the days that she was there, that, man, the non-believers had absolutely no peace. Then when she started speaking to the believers who were nominal in their Christian commitment, there was no real peace in their life either. They were concerned about this and worried about that and troubled by this. It was only on those who were really dedicated and committed and submitted to a walk of obedience in Christ that really they understood what the peace of God was all about. And it was at that time that Francis wrote these words, and for many of you they'll be familiar words. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days and let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always and only for my King. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold and not a mite what I would hold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. 
Take my heart, it is thine own, and it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever only all for thee. A life of surrender, a life of commitment, is the only way that you and I will know that at the same time that we are sinners and slaves, we're also saints. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to The Open Word, the teaching ministry of Pastor David Landry of Calvary Chapel Casa Grande in Casa Grande, Arizona. To learn more about The Open Word, visit our website at theopenword.com. You can download today's teaching or subscribe to The Open Word Podcast. Subscribing to The Open Word Podcast is the best way to stay up to date with all the latest messages from Pastor David. To subscribe, log on to TheOpenWord.com, click on the podcast option on the homepage, or simply search for The Open Word in the iTunes Store. You can also give us a call if you'd like. That number to call is 520-836-9676. That's 520-836-9676. Another option to get in touch with us is to send us an email. Our email address is info at theopenword.com. That's info at theopenword.com. When you contact us, please let us know the call letters of the station you heard The Open Word on and how today's broadcast has blessed you. Your feedback helps us know the Lord's direction for this ministry. Once again, you've been listening to The Open Word with Pastor David Landry of Calvary Chapel in Casa Grande, Arizona. In the next edition of The Open Word, David will continue teaching through the Word of God. So please make plans to join us again and may God richly bless you.